This media has been presented to you by the Maryland Men of Faith, where men are challenged and encouraged to form the character of Christ. For more information, please visit mmof.org. All right, let's pray. God, thank you for blessing us. This has been a spirit-filled, message-filled, activity-filled day, uh, but we're thankful for it. And so we just pray that your hand of blessing would be on this last meeting together and that you would help us to learn how to be faithful and true to duty. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Is that one still on or is that... Okay, we got it. Okay. Uh, Keys to remaining faithful. So in Daniel chapter 3 is what we're going to look at today, uh, the story of the three Hebrew worthies. may dabble a little bit outside of that too. But the context of Daniel 3 begins in Daniel 1, right? So Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, that's the name their mama gave them. I don't know why we call them their Babylonian names. It's always kind of unique and strange to me because we don't call Daniel his Babylonian name, but we call them their Babylonian names, and no one asks the question why. Uh, It's in the narrative, so it's fine. But anyway... These four are brought into uh, Babylon, right? They sacked. I mean, this is, it's kind of a gnarly story, right? Like Jerusalem gets sacked. Then these men are literally sexually assaulted and taken a march of nearly hundreds of miles across the desert. They're prisoners of war and they're refugees. We really think this through about what these guys went through and the fact that they chose to live lives of integrity and even have mercy and care for the people who did this to them when they were sexually assaulted, they're prisoners of war, and they're refugees. Isn't that crazy? We hardly talk about that for whatever reason. But they chose to live lives of integrity, right? Many Israelites are just completely caving. They're not living up to principles, we're sure. And yet in this scenario, these guys chose to stay true to principle or go hungry. Right? Like they're not going to eat the king's provisions. They're not going to drink his wine. But by them standing for principle in Daniel chapter 1, it sets up a scenario in Daniel chapter 2 where Nebuchadnezzar speaks to his wise men and says, You're just trying to buy time. And I'm not having it. Right? If you don't give me an answer, you're done. Well, it's interesting because Daniel walks into the presence of the king and says, Hey, can I have some time? Why is Daniel given time when the other wise men aren't? It's because of the life that he lived before Daniel 2. Daniel 1 is part of that. Daniel 1 is also the precursor now to Daniel chapter 3, where there's also grace given to them that other people wouldn't have received. So a decree is given in Daniel chapter 3. You can turn there. I'm going to overview for time's sake. I may dabble here and a bit there. Daniel chapter 3. Remember, you're not present if you don't have a Bible, y'all. So I'm about to... Take your gold star off of the board on the wall there. Daniel chapter 3. So Nebuchadnezzar, he's given the vision in Daniel 2 of an image, right? Of a statue of gold, silver, bronze, iron, and then iron and clay. And at the conclusion of that, he falls on his face before a humiliated servant and declares, your God is the only God. He's the real deal. And, you know, they want to offer sacrifices or whatever. You get to Daniel chapter 2, and he kind of doesn't like this idea that there's going to be a kingdom inferior to his that takes over after him. So what does he do? In Daniel chapter 3, he builds an image that's entirely of gold. Ah, much better, right? We don't lose, we don't lose our rulership. I, we fixed it. Don't worry, I, I edited it a little bit, made some edits and posts, and it's much better now. So they make a decree, and all the known world, the leaders of the known world, are called to be there, right? says that he, he sent word to gather together the satraps, this is verse 2, administrators, governors, counselors, treasurers, and judges and magistrates, all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication. 
Okay? So, when they come and they all gather together, then there's this command that if you don't fall down and worship at this, at the sound of the music, uh, then you're going to be thrown into a burning, fiery furnace. So, when you hear these things, this is what you need to do. And they all fall down and worship uh, except... Uh, these three obdurate weeds on the plain of Dura, right? These three stubborn men standing in this whole group of people. They don't bow. Won't do it, right? The easy thing is like, I'm just going to tie my shoe real quick. I'm not bound. I'm just, you know, just going to do my thing. Do a little calisthenics. They, they, they won't do it. They stand. And word gets to the king that they aren't going to do this, that they're not going to worship. Okay, they don't worship your image. There are certain Jews who don't serve your gods. You put them in high-ranking officials. You put them over the affairs of the government. They won't listen to you, king. They don't regard you. They don't serve your gods or worship the gold image which you set up. So verse 13, it says, Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold image which I've made? Now, if you're ready at the time you hear the sound of the, all these music uh, and fall down what you've made, good. But if you will not worship, you should be cast immediately in the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And then he says, and who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Now, this, this should beg some questions, right? First of all, he's giving them a second chance. Why? The decree was, if you don't worship... You die. Why don't these guys get newt? Like, why, why don't they die? Daniel 1. The life of integrity that they lived before Daniel 3 earned respect even of a pagan king. Remember, we're talking about this idea of being true to duty. You choosing to be a person of integrity could be a decision that is life or death. Do you see that? Daniel 2 and in Daniel 3, we see this example that choosing to be true to duty literally saved their lives, at, at least in the first glance, right? In the first go around. Then he makes this statement, who's the God who will deliver you? And my salty response would be the same God that put you on your face in Daniel 2. <laughs> they don't say that. They're a little smarter than I am. But you just think like this, this is the context. We, we really don't pay attention to the narrative of scripture. We pay attention to prove ourselves right and to make statues and give prof prophetic presentations. We don't really pay attention to the people in these narratives. And when you sit still and pay attention to the context and the narratives and people's stories and emotions and feelings, scripture makes the assumption that you understand how humanity works and that you will read the humanity lens into the people in Scripture. This is why the spirit of prophecy is so powerful and profound. You get details regarding the humanity, the thought processes and so forth of people. And people say, like, I can't believe Ellen White says stuff that's not in the Bible. It's what it, many of the things that she talks about are stuff that is logical when you think about the humans involved in their stories. Does that make sense? It's not crazy. So Scripture expects that. Right? It expects that you're going to interpret what you're reading and the, the human stories and the human element because you're a human and you know how humans work. Does that make sense? So anyway, I think we miss a lot of stuff when we do this in our readings. So then Ellen White comments on this idea. She says, as the three Hebrews stood before the king, 
he was convinced that they possessed something that the other wise men of his kingdom did not have. What does she say about him? They were faithful in the performance of every duty, and he would give them another trial. The fact that they were faithful in every duty is what causes their lives to be saved and gives them another opportunity. Being faithful in every duty. Here's the thing. The priests aren't staring over their shoulders seeing if they're compliant or not. There is no real social accountability for these men because there's no testimony of other Israelites being faithful apart from Daniel. So them caving is going to be just like the other guys. Are you understanding? They made a decision to be true to duty when everybody else was not true to duty. That cost them a whole lot more. It would be much easier to just be like everybody else. But they made a conscious decision. I will honor God at every stage of this journey. Now, would it be easy to be discouraged and give up hope and give up faith when you're a victim of sexual assault? You've been humiliated as a man. You'll never have kids ever again. Not capable. And you're a prisoner of war and a refugee. Would it be really easy for you to just say, yeah, I'm good. Thanks. I'm moving on. and I'm going to do me. And yet adversity did not deprive these men of their principles. The hardships, the difficulties being wronged by people did not keep them from being men of principle. Okay. Of being true to duty. Daniel tries to save the lives of his counterparts, the other wise men in Babylon. Why does he care about King Nebuchadnezzar who sent people to violate him and make him a prisoner of war and a refugee? This is what God does. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 says, we, we, we no longer view men according to the flesh, he says. We don't view people based upon what we can get out of them. We view them through the lens of what God has already done for them in Christ and by faith going forward for Daniel. Right? We view people differently, not according to the flesh. And we see that here. Okay? So, then they're thrown into the furnace. They say, look, God's going to deliver us, but even if he doesn't deliver us, we're not going to bow. Amen. I'm not doing that. Don't ask. You don't, you don't even need to play the music again. Don't even do the doobie-doo again. The music's <laughs> terrible anyway. Right? It's not going to happen. I'm not bowing, so we'll go in. So they get tied up. The men who throw them into the fiery furnace, what happens to them? Yeah, they get smoked, right? These guys are completely destroyed in the fire. The crazy thing is when you live in a home where there's a fireplace or one of those wood-burning stoves, you basically always smell like smoke. Can I, can I, anyone else want to testify to that? Or was it just at a self-supporting school where they're just bad wood stoves? That was my experience. I always smelled like smoke. These guys are thrown in a raging fire. There is no smell of smoke. Only the ropes are burned. They're still having a great hair day. Like these guys are just <laughs> unfazed. But the people who put them in the fire are completely destroyed in this scenario. <laughs> Sorry, and when I get tired, I get loose. Pray for me. Um, but here's the amazing thing. As they're in this scenario, they're in the fire. It becomes very evident to King Nebuchadnezzar that somebody else is in there. And not just anybody. Who does he say is in the fire with them? Uh, did he see the felt... Uh, stories that we have in Sabbath school to know what Jesus looks like. He's tall, thin, white with a mullet and a beard. You know, Jesus wasn't white, right? Just saying. But they, yeah, 
Jim Caviezel was a terrible Jesus too, by the way. They're just the worst. But anyway, so I, I, I just, I, I see this. How is it that he knows what the Son of God looks like? The only thing I can come up with is it's impossible to have an encounter with the living Christ and not know. And it's very evident to the men who are hurting the people of God, seemingly are trying to, that God is with them. It's very evident to Nebuchadnezzar and his boys that God is with these people, that the Son of God is with them, that Jesus is with them in the furnace. And this brings glory to God. You know what that tells me? That the only reason why God would allow for such a trying experience was to bring glory to him. And God seemed to have faith in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because they would not have been in that scenario were it not for the fact that God already believed that they could and would succeed. You know what that tells me? That the only crisis I'm going to face in life or crises that I'm going to face in life are ones that God already knows that by His grace I can withstand. Part of what will lead you to be true to duty is receiving and appreciating the faith of Jesus. That Jesus doesn't see you for what you are. He sees you for what you can become. Jesus believes in you. He believes in your ability to stand. And so if he allows you to be in a trial, it's because he believes that you can succeed. Some of us right now are in some big trials. Big ones. That are nearly killing us right now. And you need to know today the only reason why that trial was permitted was because God believes that you will stand. God believes that you can stand. And the question is, will you believe in God's belief in you in this moment? Will you take hold of God's belief in you in this crisis and choose to believe that he can see you through? God never allows you to be in a scenario in which he isn't going to be there for you. There's never a scenario in your life in which God is not going to be there for you. It's not possible. Okay? And so glory is brought to God through this. Listen to this. By the deliverance of his faithful servants, the Lord declared that he takes his stand with the oppressed. Amen? Akeem was talking about that crisis that's soon to come. God takes his stand with the oppressed, and he rebukes all earthly powers that rebel against the authority of heaven. By the way... If you're not aware, the story of Daniel 3 and Daniel 6 are types of that crisis that's to come. In the book of Daniel, there are prophecies and there are stories. And the stories are filled with practical lessons on how to live in the midst of those prophecies. That's the purpose of the book of Daniel. So when you get these interludes where they're not really prophetic in nature, there are practical stories for us that teach us how to live in the midst of those prophecies of the book of Daniel. Daniel 1 is an example of how to live in the midst of the crisis at the end of time, right? How to stand for principle. Daniel 3, same thing. Daniel 5, Daniel 6, right? These are examples for us, practical lessons. Daniel 4 is a big one. Right? The fact that Nebuchadnezzar finally falls upon the rock of Christ and is broken and is saved, converted, right? an enemy of Israel. God gives these practical lessons for you and me. Daniel 9 has practical lessons, so does Daniel 10. So there's, there's mixing of those things. Okay? The three Hebrews declared to the whole nation of Babylon their faith in him whom they worship. They relied on God. In the hour of their trial, they remembered the promise. Don't you love this? 
that God had scriptures for them to see them through the crisis that would come later. This happens. I don't have time to go into that right now. It's an amazing story. Um, there's, there's a presentation on Audioverse. It's called When You Don't Understand. Um, if you just look that up, I go through the story, Daniel 8, 9, and 10. There are prophecies in Scripture that set up people in Scripture to succeed in their crises. Here's one of them. Isaiah was written, right? This, this prophecy was given and this promise was given before these guys are in the fiery furnace. It says, In the hour of the trial, they remember the promise. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. Part of their confidence was, and, and a big part of their confidence, was in what God himself had said in Scripture. How do you find yourself being true to duty in the biggest crisis of your life? By relying upon what the Word of God says, not what you see and not what you feel. This is our safeguard, guys. Ellen White, there's a whole section in the Great Controversy. The Scriptures are safeguard. There's a reason for that, right? And there's principles of this, and there's precedent for this within the Old Testament and New Testament. And in a marvelous manner, their faith in the living word had been honored in the sight of all. Their faith was in God's immutable word, and it was honored in the sight of all. The tidings of their wonderful deliverance were carried to many countries by the representatives of the different nations that had been invited by Nebuchadnezzar to the dedication. Through the faithfulness of his children, God was glorified in how much of the earth? All of the earth. Isn't this amazing? Nebuchadnezzar falls in his face your God is the only God, Daniel 2. Daniel 3 is, yeah, actually, uh, what if we just spice this up a little? What if it's all gold? Yeah, I like that way better. In fact, I want everybody in the known world to come worship this statue about me. And in that moment of self-gratification and a seeming threat and dangerous scenario for God's people, what happens? What the enemy meant for evil, God turns for good. Yeah? Now, she continues, important are the lessons to be learned from the experience of the Hebrew youth on the plain of Dura. In this our day, many of God's servants, though innocent of wrongdoing, will be given over to suffer humiliation and abuse at the hands of those who, inspired by Satan, are filled with envy and religious bigotry. Especially will the wrath of man be aroused against those who hallow the Sabbath of the fourth commandment, and at last a universal decree will denounce these as deserving of death. She's talking about Revelation 13 and the mark of the beast crisis. The season of distress before God's people will call for a faith that will not falter. His children must make it manifest that he is the only object of their worship and that no consideration, not even that of life itself, can induce them to make the least concession to false worship. My God will deliver me, but even if he doesn't, I can't budge. To the loyal heart, the commands of sinful, finite men will sink into insignificance beside the word of the eternal God. Truth will be obeyed, though the result be imprisonment or exile or death. God's men at this stage and women would rather die than sin. The work of God in transforming these people in this process, right, in this crisis is to come, and as he seals his people, will be one that they would rather die than dishonor their God. As in the days of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, so in the closing period of earth's history, the Lord will work mightily in behalf of those who stand steadfastly for the right. He who walked with the Hebrew worthies in the fiery furnace will be with his followers wherever they are. 
His abiding presence will comfort and sustain. And in the midst of the time of trouble, trouble such as has not been since there was a nation, his chosen ones will stand unmoved. And listen to this. Satan, with all the host of evil, cannot destroy the weakest of God's saints. Angels that excel in strength will protect them. And in their behalf, Jehovah will reveal himself as a God of gods, able to save to the uttermost those who have put their trust in him. We see this again in Daniel 6. Daniel 6. So it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom and over these three governors of whom Daniel was the one. So Daniel, again, this emasculated prisoner of war and refugee is given a high ranking position in a foreign land. Can you imagine? Like you have overthrown these guys and you want one of them to be one of your leaders. But again, he's a person of integrity. This awakens the jealousy of the other people in the kingdom. And so they come up with a brilliant idea. Let's make worshiping anything other than you, O king, illegal for the next series of days. Okay? And in that scenario, uh, it gets ugly, right? And so they say... Um, they could, it also says here that they could find no fault in Daniel. The only way in which they can get him in trouble is to make worshiping his God illegal. Could your coworkers say that? Could your family? The only way they can trip you up is to make worshiping the law of Jehovah illegal. Because the guy shows up to work every day on time. He pays his taxes faithfully. He does his homework. He speaks to his children with dignity and respect. Daniel's a eunuch, by the way. You get the idea, right? Like he, he does everything for the glory of God. Okay. That's an important point that we'll see here later. Okay. So this awakens their jealousy. So the only way we can do this is to make worshiping his God illegal. So they say, don't worship anybody or else you're going to you know, be thrown in the lion's den. King Darius has no idea what will happen with this. So the, satra- the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning him, but we shall not unless it's concerning the law of his God. So the decree is made, and once the king realizes what has happened, it's too late. Because according to the laws of the Medes and Persians, those laws cannot change. It's ex-cathedra before that was a thing, right? Like when the king makes a decree, you can't change it. This is the way it's going to be. And he regrets it deeply and listen to what he says as Daniel's about to be thrown into the lion's den. He says this. That's what preachers say when they're still trying to find the text. (laughs) Verse 15. uh, They say, King, you can't let this go on. It can't be changed. So then he goes to Daniel, verse 16, and says, Your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Where did that faith come from? It's contagious. He saw it in Daniel. And he heard about it in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and so forth, right? There's this sense in which he understands, your God, he will deliver you. Which I think is fascinating to come from a pagan king. So the stone's brought, they put it over, and nothing can change. Then he goes to his palace, he spends the night fasting, no musicians are brought before him. He can't sleep, he rises early in the morning, and then you see... Uh, God's triumph here in this scenario. He says, Daniel, serving a living God, has your God, again, he says, whom you serve continually. He knew that Daniel put God first in all that he did. 
Has he been able to deliver you from the lions? And then he said, O king, live forever. Verse 21, verse 22. May my God send an angel to shut the lions' mouths so they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I've done no wrong before you. And then eventually, you know, the bad guys get thrown in the lion's den. They don't even hit the floor before all their bones are broken. So from the story of Daniel's deliverance, we may learn that in, listen to this, that in seasons of trial and gloom, God's children should be just what they were when their prospects were bright with hope and their surroundings all that they could desire. And she says this, Daniel in the lion's den was the same Daniel who stood before the king as chief among the ministers of state and as a prophet of the most high. A man whose heart is stayed upon God will be the same in the hour of his greatest trial as he is in prosperity when the light and favor of God and of man beam upon him. Okay. Faith reaches to the unseen and grasps eternal realities. Now, some of you may be discouraged by hearing this because you think, man, those guys are studs. Like, I, I got no game, son. I can't even get out of bed on time in the morning. And these guys are standing before pagan kings with death threats. Like, this is, this is tough. And it's easy for one to find themselves in a mindset of fear when thinking about having to face circumstances like this. There's no way I could stand like them. And we can be tempted to believe that these guys, seemingly on a whim, mustered the guts to be these superhuman giants of faith. Right? Like these guys just on the plane of Dura were, were rock stars and gangsters, right? And, and Daniel, just in this situation, like he's just like the guy in that moment. But I think we've actually missed the whole narrative and that's where we're going. Because you start to have these thoughts like, man, am I going to have the guts to stand then? There's this uncertainty, isn't there? Will I be that type of person on that day? Will I muster that type of faith on that day? Listen to this. Only by faithfulness in the little things can the soul be trained to act with fidelity under larger responsibilities. God brought Daniel and his fellows into connection with the great men of Babylon, that these heathen men might become acquainted with the principles of true religion, which implies that true religion is being faithful in the small things. In the midst of a nation of idolaters, Daniel was to represent the character of God. And I just want to take an interlude here and think about this. This is how mission-minded God is. Even when he's disciplining his own people for their sins, he still uses the faithful among them like a Trojan horse to reach the heathens who've taken them captive and to reveal the true God to them. The nation of Israel was selfish, judgmental, narcissistic, and nationalistic. God only cares about us. Israel first, if you will, we're the real, we're the real ones. And because Israel wouldn't witness to Babylon, what does God do? He lets them go captive in Babylon and uses the faithful to witness in that scenario. Isn't this amazing? God is so missional in this regard. His rod of correction sends them away to reach people they refuse to reach when they were in prosperity. Another thing that's clear here is his dealings with his people is that he's not racist or showing undue favor to Israel. Israel's call was a missional one to show the rest of the world that you can be saved too. But they were selfish and rebellious. And when they messed up, they got a whooping too. The very curses that got the, the, the very lifestyle that got the surrounding Canaanites kicked out of Canaan through Joshua and the Israelites got Israel kicked out later in their history. 
God did not show favoritism to Israel in that sense. They got a whooping in exile just like the other guys did. Okay? And in the midst of that whooping, I'll use some of you to reach these people while you're there. So then back to Ellen White. She says, how did he become fitted for a position of so great trust and honor? Again, it was his faithfulness in the little things that gave complexion to his whole life. He honored God in the smallest duties and the Lord cooperated with him. To Daniel and his companions, God gave knowledge and skill in all learning and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. As God called Daniel to witness for him in Babylon, so he calls us to be his witnesses in the world today. In the smallest as well as the largest affairs of life, he desires us to reveal to men the principles of his kingdom. And one of those principles is choosing to be a person of integrity, even in the things that seem small and trivial. Daniel just choosing to eat the right things when no one else around him really cares literally saved his life. And it even saved the life of Babylonians who were going to be killed alongside him in Daniel 2. Are you understanding? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could have seemingly conceded just to save their lives so they can continue being a witness in the kingdom. Is it easy to explain stuff like that away? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll bow now so that I can keep living because I'm one of the only faithful people here. Could you think that way? We can do this, right? So thankfully, the very things that God is asking of us, though, he's willing to empower us to do. God is not asking you in your own power, in your own willpower to be faithful in the small things. He's asking you to bring the small things before him so that he can empower you to be faithful in them. You understand the difference? There's a big, big difference. God isn't telling you to work harder at something you still aren't getting right. Right. Some of us, we struggle with life. Right. Like in my travels, it's been very difficult for me to be disciplined and exercise. Yet I know I need exercise. It can be difficult to eat right when you travel or when you have busy work schedules or so forth. It can be difficult to have consistent devotions for people. It can be difficult for people to witness and so forth. God is not asking you to try harder at something that you can't do. He's asking you to recognize and realize I'll give you the faithfulness for that decision. But will you come to me before you don't make it? Does that make sense? Will you give this thing that you know you need to do to me? And will you ask me for strength and grace to succeed in it? Yeah? The weight isn't all on us. We need to opt in by choosing to say yes and to abide in him. That's the difference, right? Christ's object lessons. As the will of man cooperates with the will of God, what happens to it? It becomes omnipotent. What does that mean? all-powerful. Maybe your will is lame right now. On a scale of 1 to 10, it's a solid negative 75. <laughs> right? If I, yeah, if I neglected my girl in the way that I've neglected my weights, we would not be engaged right now. Right? Like, this is one of those things that we, we have that at times, don't we? God is not asking you to do something that you can't do. He's asking you to ask for his power to do what you can't do. Do you see the difference? This is not about your willpower. This is about you. It even says in Philippians, right? To work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. If you don't have the desire to do something, God can give it to you. Just ask. 
If you don't have the resolve and the power to do something, God can give it to you. Just ask. He's literally that practical and that simple. Whatever is to be done at his command may be accomplished in his strength. All his biddings are enablings. Everything that God asks of you to do within that asking is the power to succeed. There is creative power in the word of God. Part of what Akeem was talking about earlier with Jones and Wagner One of the beautiful teachings they have in the book Lessons on Faith is that there's creative power in the Word of God. That when God speaks, it is so. When God, so whenever Jesus tells the man in John 5 to rise, take up his mat, and walk, that's cruel. For you to go up to somebody in a wheelchair on the side of the road and say, hey, get up, is an incredibly cruel thing to say. But not when you're Jesus. Because this guy has no infrastructure to rise, take up his mat, and walk. His legs are spaghetti noodles. He's been an invalid for 38 years. His muscles have gone to atrophy. There is not the physical ability to rise, take up his mat, and walk. So how was he able to rise, take up his mat, and walk? By believing his word and by acting upon his word. Ellen White says that in Desire of Ages 203, right? Do not wait to feel that you were made whole. Believe his word and it will be fulfilled. In acting upon his word, you will receive strength, she promises. There is creative power in God's word. So if God is calling you to do something, then lean on God to make it a reality. Do your part by believing what he says. And when you move your body weight forward, your legs start doing things they couldn't do before. Are you with me, guys? He's willing to do that for us. This is exactly how Jesus lived his life. He continually abided in God and knew that apart from him, he could do nothing. He did this to be able to empower you and me to do the same thing. Every ounce of strength that you need to stand is already yours in Christ right now. It's already yours. Jesus has already lived the perfect life that you cannot live. It's already done. You receive his life by faith through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's righteousness by faith. And that's the promise of God. So the decisions you're making right now from day to day are making you into the person that you're going to be on that day. The day that many of us are so afraid of. So we're so worried about what we're going to be then. And the real focus shouldn't be on what you're going to be then. It's who am I right now? What decisions am I making right now? What priorities do I have right now? Because those decisions I'm making right now are shaping me into who I will be then. Does that make sense? There's power in the daily life and the daily decisions. So our hope of being able to stand. These guys did not muster all of a sudden some magical faith. They did as they'd always done when face to face with a decision to make. They stood for Jesus. This is the point, guys. I hope you're not missing this. They did not become someone totally different and turn into Hulk from like the green or like the white, the skinny white guy to then the big muscly green guy in a moment when that's not what happened here. They, in that moment of crisis, in the biggest decision of their life, they were not someone different in that moment. They were the same person they were the day before when they had to pay their taxes. They were the same person they were two weeks ago when they had to take their kids to school and then go do their own thing, right? Whatever, the the chores around the house. Like, they chose to give every decision to God. She says they were faithful in every duty. This is what led to the powerful faith response in Daniel 3 and in Daniel 6. They weren't different people then. They were the same person they were when the stakes weren't on the line. Does that make sense? 
They chose to prioritize that. The reason why they were able to stand then is because their day-to-day lives have been filled with fidelity to God and to his word through prayerful surrender in each of their decisions, not just the big one. Yeah? So the way that you and I can stand then is by giving God our decision today. The decision I make today will make me into the person I will be then. And when I do that today, I'm actually preparing for my faithfulness then. Are you seeing that? Our day-to-day decisions matter. So this should humble us and encourage us because first, God seems to place a higher value on my day-to-day decisions than I do. Why is that? Because he seems to know where this leads. Yeah? Second, God seems to have more faith in my ability to stand at the end of time than I do. Right? You would not be living at that time if God didn't believe that you can succeed. And I hope you take that deeply into the depths of your heart. If you find yourself living in that crisis at the end of time, it's precisely because Jehovah Jireh, the God of heaven, actually believes that you can stand. He believes that by his grace and his strength, you will have what you need to succeed. So you shouldn't be scared of living in that season. You should be saying, all right, if I'm here, then God, what provision do you have for me? What strength and faithfulness and grace do you have for me so I can be that person that I need to be? Okay? The same practical lesson can be carried, uh, applied to our character development. Jesus, day by day, is making you into someone that you could not become apart from him. Right? And many people are freaked out by this idea of perfection, but are you aware of the fact that Ellen White says you can be perfect at every stage of development in Christ's object lessons? It's in the section called The Blade, the Kernel, and the Ear. She says, we can be perfect at every stage of development. If you're a baby Christian, you just came to Jesus, you should not expect to be the Apostle Paul. You shouldn't. Right? Wherever you are is dependent upon the environment you have around you, the, 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 the things that support your growth. Are you in a sunshiny place or a dark place spiritually? Do you get consistent rainfall or not consistent rainfall? Right? What are the things that are going to help in your growth spiritually? If those aren't available to you, you probably will not be at the same stage as somebody else. And who cares? Let me just, can I just preach here for a second? How fast you grow is none of your business and stop worrying about it. That's not your problem. Reminds me of the story of Peter and John and Jesus in John chapter 21. Jesus is walking with Peter on the, on the beach after he says, Jesus, do you love, or Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Yes, yes, yes. Then he says, here's what it's going to cost you, Pete, and it's costly. Someone's going to dress you that you're not going to be able to have control of that. You're going to stretch out your arms. You're going to die. And his response is, yeah, but what about this guy? Because he, he turns around and he sees John walking behind him on the beach. He says, yeah, what about this guy? And you know what Jesus' response is? That's none, that's none of your business. That's exactly right. That's none of your business. You follow me. Guys, your only responsibility as a Christian is to abide in Jesus. Keep abiding in Jesus. And if you abide in Jesus, you will grow. It's guaranteed. She even says that the Christian growth is silent and imperceptible, but continuous. You know what that implies? There's going to be days where you're fully convinced you're not growing. And you know what? It's not true. You are growing. If our growth can be silent and imperceptible, that means that God is doing things even when you feel like you're not growing. And the devil himself knows this. 
This is why you think, man, like I went to this men's retreat. Yeah, I need to get serious about having a devotional life. And you read your Bible for two weeks and the devil's hot, stinky breath speaks into your ear and he says, you still stink. You're still a loser. You still lose your temper with your kids. You're still mean to your wife. You still don't get up on time. This doesn't work for you. Works for everybody else, but not for you. Can you guys relate to this? Yes or no? Why does he say that? Because he knows if you pull yourself out of that soil, it's over. And he knows if you stay in that soil, it's a game changer. If you keep abiding in Jesus, it is guaranteed that you will grow. Guaranteed. So stay in the soil. And how fast you grow compared to this guy or that guy is none of your business. And stop worrying about it. And if you were just planted three weeks ago and you look like this, you're exactly where you should be and heaven views you as perfect. If you've been growing for six years and you're this tall, you're exactly where you should be and you're viewed as perfect in the eyes of God if you're walking with Jesus. If you've been growing for 50 years, what you get the idea here, guys? It's not your problem. Stop comparing yourselves with everybody else. You have one standard. It's Jesus Christ. And if you stay abiding in him and growing in him and you set yourself in an environment for growth and nurturing, that's it. That's why you're here. It's that simple. Day by day, Jesus can give you what you need in that sense. Okay? So if we yield our day-to-day decisions to God, we don't have to be afraid anymore. Right? You can stand for Jesus in the plain of Dura when everybody else bows because you gave him yesterday's decision and the day before that and the day before that. You're developing a lifestyle and a habit, a train of thought that continually seeks power from God. Not from yourself, not from your own willpower, but from God himself. Okay? And you'll be able to tell the popes and the prelates, God himself will deliver me, but if he doesn't, I'm still not bowing. Because you cannot offer me what Jesus offers me. This is what God wants for you, and he doesn't want you to fail, and he's not setting you up to fail. Okay? That's not, that's not my Jesus. He wouldn't do that to you. Okay? Uh, and there's a God in heaven who doesn't want you to be lost, who wants you to be ready, and has everything necessary to make you ready, but the choice is yours. What will you do when given the invitation to commune with God on a daily basis? What will we do when given the opportunity to receive power from God in our day-to-day decisions? So guys, it's not God's future decision that you need to be afraid of. Will I be good enough or will I not? It's the decisions you're making right now. Because the decisions you're making right now are making you into who you will be then. God is going to give us on that day what we've been asking for in the days before. And I hope you write that down. God is going to give you on that day what you were asking in the days before. So be asking for that, to be a person of fidelity, to be a person of integrity in each decision. That's the hardest thing for God to do, to turn us over to our decisions. And so the power of choice matters then, and Satan understands this. And this is why he tempts you to place such a low estimate upon your day-to-day decisions. Are you understanding? doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. Like that spirit of procrastination and indifference and indolence, this is where it comes from. Right? There, there's a benefit to leaning into things that hurt and that are uncomfortable and that are difficult. That are, that are for your benefit, by the way. Don't just like put your hand in a toaster or something. like no, Not that. But for you to actually willfully choose to strain, to deal with hard things is good for you. Right? To get heavy exertion with weights, to go for a run, to do things that are difficult, to tax the mind is to your benefit. 
Because if you just keep tailoring to your own comfort level and your own desires, you never grow. Right? You don't build that grit, that resolve, that manliness. So God's doing everything he can to reach us, and he's willing to give us everything we need, but we have to opt in. God's seeking a relationship. That's his end goal and a relationship that is fireproof. Amen? Amen. Fellows, that's what God wants for you. He can help you with every decision you need to make, even the small ones. You're not a bother to him. And if you learn to lean on him and depend upon him at every step throughout life, when the biggest crisis of your life comes, you're going to do the same thing you've been doing for weeks and for years. I'm going to lean on Jesus. Are you with me? That's how you stay true to duty. You abide in Jesus. You ask Jesus for strength. You ask for God the Father to give you power, strength, and courage, and a willingness to do the things that you don't even want to do, but you know you need to do. Ask Him. Right? The fact that you wake up in the morning and don't feel like getting out of bed doesn't mean that you shouldn't. Your boss doesn't care if you don't feel like getting out of bed. No call, no show means no job, son. It's that simple, right? So how you feel cannot determine what you do. You have to make a decision. What is God calling me to do? And if he's calling me and I don't feel like it, this process doesn't stop there. I then ask him to give me strength and a willingness to do what he's asking me to do. Does that make sense? And he's willing. He's willing to make you willing. Are you willing to be willing? Do you follow? That's the question, fellas. And there's this powerful statement. Go to John chapter 15 about abiding in Jesus and then we'll be done. Because some of us just beat ourselves up because we're not producing enough fruit. So Jesus must be upset with me because I'm not producing enough fruit. This whole idea of like, stop worrying about it. Stop beating yourself up. Listen to this. It's John 15, beginning of verse one. Jesus says, I'm the true vine and my father is a vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit My translation says takes away, but the original language actually says he lifts it up. What it's literally saying here is that for those branches that don't bear fruit, Jesus as the vine dresser is willing to lift us up. Okay. Every branch in me that bears fruit, he prunes and it may bear more fruit. You were already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, what happens to them? They bear much fruit. Why? Because without me, you can't do anything. Jesus knows this. It's only through him that you can bear fruit. Okay? If anyone does not abide in me, he's cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they're burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Here's the thing, guys. How much fruit you bear is not your problem. That's not your calling. Your calling is to abide in Jesus. Those who don't bear fruit, he doesn't get rid of you. He lifts you up to support you, to set you up to bear fruit. The only ones he gets rid of are those who don't abide in him. So don't look at your life and think, I'm not bearing enough fruit. Jesus is going to get rid of me, right? And he doesn't want to get rid of anybody, by the way, for that matter. But those who are separated are not those who aren't bearing fruit. It's those who don't abide. 
So stop navel-gazing at yourself. Stop beating yourself up and saying, I'm not good enough. I'm not producing enough fruit. I'm not as fruitful as the other guy. Stop worrying about that. Knock it off. You have one job. It's very simple. I mean, the world makes it hard, but you understand. What Jesus is asking of you is to do one thing and to do it very well. Abide in him. Keep sticking with Jesus. Keep drawing strength and nourishment and sap from him. And if you do this, you are viewed as perfect in the eyes of God. You will have the righteousness you need and the righteousness God requires. And you will grow and you will change. That's the promise. That's the blessing. But it comes from staying connected to him. So when you get discouraged by that silent and imperceptible phase of your growth, remember what you've heard tonight. You want to be true to duty? Well, you better stay in the vine. I'm fully convinced the devil can't deceive you. He'll discourage you. Right? You may be able to give a booming Bible study in the 2300 days, but if you're convinced that you're a loser and God doesn't love you and you're not good enough, it's over. If he can't deceive you, he'll discourage you. And I'm also convinced of this, that the amount of oppression a person receives is in direct proportion to the potential that they bear. The amount of hardship and opposition and oppression that you're dealing with is in direct proportion to the potential that you bear. You know what that tells me? Not only does God believe in you, Satan believes in you too. You know what that means? That means everybody in the great controversy believes in you except for you. God believes in you. The enemy believes in you. Do you? And I don't mean this in the Oprah sense, right? <laughs> so to make sure that's clear. I mean the faith of Jesus, right? Now, I'm a good person type of thing. You understand the difference, right? Satan knows what you're capable of if you believe the things about you that God believes. That's why you're harassed. That's why you're oppressed. That's why you don't have motivation to do and dare because he knows if you did have that, you'd be a force to be reckoned with for the glory of God. So take hold of God's belief in you this evening, fellas. He believes the best things about the very person, the very person that you're afraid of disappointing the most. God actually believes the best things about you. Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Wesley, William Miller and Ellen White, all the same struggle. They did not believe that God actually loved them or they were good enough. But when they came to believe the things about them that God believed, the world became a different place. There's a reason those thoughts are being thrown at you, right? A lot of times while we have low motivation to do those daily, seemingly small tasks is because we think we're losers. We're not good enough. We're believing lies. We need the voice of truth to speak into our hearts and minds today. You are his beloved, Ephesians 1. You are accepted in the beloved. You're precious in his sight. He believes in you. He sees value in you. And he treats you based upon what you could be, not based upon what you currently are. And if you take hold of God's belief in you, this world can become a different place, fellas. And we need you now more than ever. The world is desperately needing, and the church is desperately needing, godly men who will lean into the responsibilities that God has given them and not crumble under them and run because it's hard. God needs men of grit, resolve, and diligence. Well, he'll give you grit, resolve, and diligence. You think Jesus wanted to go to the cross? Absolutely not. But the faith of Jesus is what saw him through. 
He chose to pursue and to persist in spite of not being appreciated, not being loved, not being warmly received, and not feeling like God the Father was there. Jesus chose to persevere through faith. And what does it say about God's people at the end of time in Revelation 14, 12? Here they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Not their faith in Jesus, the faith of Jesus. They choose to believe the things about them that God believes. They choose to believe the things about others that God believes. And they choose to persevere through faith. You can't create the faith of Jesus, my friends, any more than you can create the commandments of God. They keep the commandments of God and keep the faith of Jesus. Why? It's given to them by Christ through his strength for his glory. Are you with me? Jesus will give you what you need to succeed, but will you take it? Amen? Has this made sense? Yes or no? Being true to duty is not about working harder and white-knuckling your way and trying to do even more what you have not been able to do to this date. It is radical dependence upon the strength and faithfulness and holiness of Jesus Christ. And that can be a reality in your life by faith right now. That Jesus can declare you righteous while he's doing a work of making you righteous. That you can have assurance of salvation because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ and trust that he who's begun that good work in you is going to finish it for his glory. Amen? Amen. God in heaven, I, I trust and believe that that's the desire of these men in this room tonight. That we want to be who you've called us to be. We confess we don't have what it takes. But the good news is you've promised us in the faith I live by 111. What is justification by faith? It's the work of God, not man. It's the work of God in doing for man that which it is not in his power to do for himself. And when men see their nothingness, then they're prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We confess our nothingness. We choose to abide in Jesus and to receive his faithfulness and his diligence and his awesomeness for your glory. I pray that you'd cover our sins with the blood of Jesus. Lord, forgive us for being so hard on ourselves and for trying to fix things on our own. And may we see our great need of you. May we choose to abide in you, to commune in you, and to, by faith, take the steps each day that you're calling us to take in obedience to your call and your commands through your strength and your grace alone. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope this presentation from the Maryland Men of Faith has been a blessing to you. Your feedback is welcomed. Please visit us at MMOF.org.